Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles. Hey, good morning. It is Good Friday. This is a special edition of Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. Thank you so much for sharing this time with me on this very, very special and profound day. We are going to journey to the cross with Jesus today. I hope you are able to spend some very quiet time um, in his presence today and to find yourself at the very foot of the cross Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Luke chapter 23, verses 44 to 47. It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion Seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. We're going to talk in a moment about the way Matthew records the scene, and we're going to actually spend some time unpacking it. But I want to hear in Luke's gospel focus on something that Luke tells us that that he says in in such a significant way. I mean, as a scientist, like he wants to be sure that you're paying attention to the weather. But the sun stopped shining. So, you know, was there a solar eclipse? And if so, did it last for three hours? If you've experienced a solar eclipse, then you know how profound and striking that experience is. And it does get dark, but it doesn't it doesn't stay that way for very long at all. And so we want to talk about what it is like for the sun to stop shining and how cold it would get, and how dark it would get. And then I want you to consider that Luke means a second thing here. What does it mean not only for the sun, S-U-N, to stop shining, but what does it mean for the light of the world to stop shining? What does it mean for the sun, S-O-N, to stop shining? We live in the light of God's glory and grace. At the very beginning, God says, let there be light, and there's light. And then he sends Jesus into the world to be the light of the world. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, now you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before others that they'll see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. And then when we look to the very end of the Bible, what do we find? There's no more need for the S-U-N son because the S-O-N sun is shining so brightly. The radiance of the Son of God illuminates everything. Does he illuminate your life today? The only way that we can find ourselves at the foot of the cross today and not grieve unto death is that we know that his light is going to shine again. 
And so join me on this Good Friday as we consider the cross and we consider Christ and we consider what God has done for us on our behalf, that our lights might shine, that we might be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light, that we, in fact, might become light bearers, that the light of Christ might shine within us and through us, even into the darkness in which we find ourselves today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is a special edition on this Good Friday. And when we come back, we're going to go to the foot of the cross. Hammers, nails, and timbers of the carpenter's trade Made the sound that pierced her soul as the cross was being raised She can hear them driving nails upon the hillside And she prays And once again I look upon the cross where you So as we consider the events of Good Friday, let's let's read the scene um, as recorded in Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry the cross of Jesus. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and they kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot even save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, he's calling Elijah. One of them Uh, ran and took a sponge and filled it with a sour wine and put it on a reed to give it to him to drink. Others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks were split. Tombs were opened. Bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised Coming out of tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. 
when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. And among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which had been cut from a rock. He rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. These, my friends, are the events um, of Good Friday. In the 33rd year of the Lord, I mean, we think about Anno Domini, we think about the year of the Lord, 2023, and we tend to think of that as... um, time being counted from the birth of Jesus might rightly be counted from this day, might rightly be counted from the day that Jesus um, died upon the cross. This is the year of the Lord. Um, And so when we think about Good Friday, we think about Friday being good because of what God did for us in Jesus Christ upon the cross, but it was certainly a God-awful day for Jesus, right? Good Friday is a good day for you and me because of Jesus. But Good Friday was a God-awful day for Jesus. It's the day upon which he was tried and declared innocent but condemned anyway. It's the day when he was whipped and stripped and crucified, dead, and buried. I want to spend a little time talking about the pain that he endured. Um, And we want to talk about what Jesus accomplished upon the cross. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. So as we consider the events of Good Friday, I want you to also consider the night before. Jesus didn't sleep the night before his crucifixion. So on Thursday night in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, we remember his agony. Like, right, he's experiencing this deep 
spiritual, emotional, psychological um, pain, bearing human sin. And then he's arrested and early Friday morning, he's whipped raw. It's not even 9 a.m. and the soldiers are prodding him to his crucifixion. So the events um, unfold rapidly. He's moved about town. He's in and out of the hands of soldiers. Um, He's condemned as a prisoner. He's trotted out before a crowd that cries, crucify him, crucify him. His crimes were written on a board and hung around his neck. And he was likely naked as they marched him through the streets. When they arrive at the cross, the sign nailed over his head for passerbys to read. He collapsed under the weight of the cross. He's forced to carry. Soldiers actually knew there was no point in beating him further um, because he could no longer like bear the weight of the cross. And so they drafted this pedestrian along the road, Simon of Cyrene. Man, that guy, what a story he has to tell, right? I wish we had, you know, like of among the things I wish we had, I wish we had the testimony of Simon of Cyrene. The Romans occupied the land of Israel, um, and they often compelled civilians um, into service. And a soldier would simply touch his spear to the shoulder of whomever he wanted, and that person became like a temporary slave. The choice of the moment um, for this tourist from North Africa, right, Um, probably in Jerusalem on a pilgrimage to see the holy city, never imagined he would be humiliated into carrying a cross for a man condemned to die. So this death march finally reaches the place called Golgotha, outside the city wall. It's where crucifixions were were held. Um, Apparently, the topography was such that the hill looked like something like a human skull, and that's how it got its name. I shudder to think um, what Jesus experienced next as he's laid upon the cross on the ground and they bent his arm and drove spikes through the base of his wrists, bent his legs and nailed through his ankles to the vertical wood. And then they raise the cross and they drop it into a hole in the ground so that it stands up straight. And I can't imagine the agony when it hits the ground. Mm. Fighting to get a breath. He would have strained, pressing up on the nails in his feet and pulling up on the nails in his wrists to fill his lungs with air. I can't imagine. And then those nearby mocking and insulting him, the soldiers dividing up his clothing, figuring the crucified man doesn't need them anymore. Getting the clothes was actually one of the perks of an executioner's job. And so they sit down and they get comfortable and they wait until death. Imagine being so used to the sights and smells and the agony and the sounds of death that you could make a game of it. I can't imagine. Golgotha was along a very busy road, and there were lots of passers-by. The Romans did this to make a point. The cross was low enough that people could see and talk to Jesus. 
They would have laughed. We know that they mocked him. If you're really the son of God, can't you free yourself from those nails and come off of that cross? And all of this, he does for us. He does for you. He does for me. Taunted. Even the criminals crucified with him, Scripture says, taunted him. And Jesus never defends himself. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't say anything to the cynics. Why does not God perform a miracle when he could? How could God let this happen? And we say, well, this is God's plan for the redemption of all things for all time. And this is not a plan that God had to come up with after the fact. This has been God's plan all along. God knew before the foundation of the earth, before the creation of the first man and the first woman, that he would have to come and die on our behalf to atone for our sins that his holiness could be satisfied. By my count, the first nail was driven into Jesus at about 9 a.m. He didn't die until 3 p.m. I want you to imagine those six lonely hours. Have you ever wondered what it feels like to just be all alone like that? I don't want to die alone. I don't know about you, but I don't want to die alone. I want someone who loves me well at my side. And that maybe for me is part of the greatest of the pain of the crucifixion. Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we know, we know that Jesus is intoning there the 22nd Psalm. We understand that. We understand that uh, this awful moment was a part of God's plan. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, we understand the point of the cross, But do we appreciate the agony he endured for us, for you, for me? And then, almost mercifully, eventually, death comes. We read it from the Gospel of Matthew. I'd encourage you to read it from each of the Gospels today on this Good Friday. When Matthew reported Jesus' death, he did not emotionalize or sensationalize it. He just states it simply. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. John was there. John tells us exactly what Jesus cried, and he says, it is finished. And then John writes, Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In the end, it was Jesus who not only chose to die, but chose his moment to die. He voluntarily gave up his life as a sacrifice for human sin. When Jesus cried out that he felt forsaken, you know, we have this genuine sense of desperation in his voice. But when he cries out, it is finished. There's this victory, right? So I want you to think for a moment about 
what it was that Jesus finished. He finished the, the gap, the gnawing void, the distance that sin created between you and me and God. Jesus completed the work. He came to save people from their sins. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came as the suffering servant, the sacrificial lamb, the way of salvation, eternal life. He left the glory of heaven and became a human being, born in Bethlehem, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died to do what? To finish what? To finish sin. Jesus gave everything in order that you and I might attain everything. A reconciled relationship with God the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And at the moment that Jesus gave up his spirit and breathed his last, everything changed. Everything changed. And so even the earth takes note of it. The earth quakes the temple curtain that kept everyone away from the holiest of holies, uh, kept people away from the presence of God, was ripped apart from top to bottom. Tombs burst open. Dead people came back to life. And this Roman centurion, this hardened man, even he knew something amazing had happened. Probably terrified. Certainly surprised, but confessing surely this was the Son of God. And so now it's over, or so they thought. Unable to imagine that something bigger, better, greater, more amazing might yet happen, the family and friends of Jesus bury his body. Jesus died at 3 p.m., and the law required he be buried before sunset, and so his family was too poor and too far from home to make those kinds of necessary burial arrangements. So a rich stranger, a disciple of Jesus, offers his own grave. Ironically, this guy is a member of the Sanhedrin, the group of Jerusalem leaders who had called for Jesus' crucifixion in the first place, and his name was Joseph. And he believed in Jesus, and he did not conspire with the others to kill him. Joseph approaches Pilate, secures Jesus' body, and has him buried in a rock-hewn tomb that he had recently bought for himself. Friends, that's what happened on the day Christ died. That's the story of Good Friday. And that's where we leave it. From now until Easter morn. What does it look like to spend some time today in the silence of the cemetery, acknowledging the death of Jesus on your behalf? And I know we already know the rest of the story, but maybe, maybe today we could live as if we didn't know. And we could feel what it must have felt like 
to mourn the death of Jesus. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge, and this is Faith Radio. I cast my mind to Calvary Where Jesus bled and died for me I see his wounds, his hands, his feet My Savior on that cursed tree At the questions about the cross? Do you wonder, what happened there? Why did Jesus die? What does his death accomplish? And then how, how do you and I bring the cross into its rightful context today? I mean, this horrific instrument of death that the Romans used not only to kill people, but to absolutely make a point to anyone who would think about doing anything contrary to their reign and rule. And we wear it as like jewelry around our necks. When you consider the cross on the hill far away, I mean, how do you see it through the lens of all the layers of distance and time and misunderstanding and cultural captivity? We need help peeling back the layers to really see Jesus's crucifixion clearly. And so that's up next uh, here on the special Good Friday edition of Mornings with Carmen. We'll talk with Jackson Wu about the cross in context. Embrace the cross where Jesus suffered. You're my defender. Hey, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and I'm going to do my best to behave myself during this conversation with Jackson Wu, because really, I want to talk with him about Thailand and things that are going on um, globally uh, among Christians, and particularly with um, our Chinese brothers and sisters. Jackson Wu, is uh, his day job serves as the marketing manager for Frontier Ventures, worked for 15 years in East Asia, first as a church planter, and then as a professor for a seminary for Chinese pastors. But he comes to us today because he has a new book, Reconsidering Biblical Metaphors for the Atonement. The book is The Cross in Context. Jackson, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning. Thanks for the invitation. I'll do my best to stay focused on the book today, Um, but there are so many (laughs) things I'd love to talk with you about. Really appreciate what you're writing at um, pathios.com, and so I want to encourage people to follow you on social media and uh, read what you're writing across so many um, important areas. Talk with us about um, the atonement. You know, my first thought when um, I consider the atonement is, you know, Jesus accomplishes that upon the cross. You want to take us there and then help us understand that in context. Absolutely. What I what was, I found troubling over the years was that people were always arguing, you know, and about this debate with such ferocity. And I found it ironic that the doctrine that's supposed to bring reconciliation is one of the most divisive among people. Hmm. So that's why that's why I wanted to, to dig in because I kept finding that people were, as the Chinese say, losing at the starting line. You know, they they were starting from the very wrong place, and there's no wonder people were, you know, you know, dividing over it. Okay, so when you think about and you talk about 
um, the cross uh, being this, it is the dividing line, right? But it's not supposed to be dividing those who believe in Jesus. I mean, the cross is, you know, the ultimate point of division for all of humanity. Um, But it should be a place where all Christians are unified. Like we find ourselves on equal footing at creation, at the cross, and in the kingdom of heaven. Um, so what is yep. it about, you know, different maybe metaphors of the atonement that have been so divisive among Christians and then help us, um, you know, help us alleviate that division or resolve that conflict? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good question. Uh, the analogy I give is like this. Uh, you know, let's say that in, in the world we only had a few dishes, fried chicken, pasta, scrambled eggs and say chicken dumplings. Essentially, when people are talking about the atonement, it's like they're arguing over which dish is best or which dish is God's favorite food. Is it pasta? Is it fried chicken? And that's like the very that's comparable to all the atonement theories, you know, uh, Christus Victor or, or penal substitution or whatnot. And if you if you know anything about cooking, you can just step back for a second and notice. Wait a minute, all those dishes have some common ingredients. You know, if you had, you know, flour and a few other ingredients, you could make all those and an array of other options. And so when I started looking, uh, I think that's what's going on with the atonement is that theologians, systematic theologians are arguing about these dishes, you know, scrambled eggs, pasta, fried chicken, whereas Old Testament and New Testament scholars are having a completely different conversation. And they're talking about the ingredients. And they're talking about uh, what are those basic fundamental components and metaphors that pervade every single uh, theory of atonement. And I think if we get to that, we can overcome a lot of division and it can help us to better contextualize and communicate the gospel across cultures. Yeah, because the uh, having this conversation in context is not just, you know, let's have this conversation in um in the context of the Old Testament and then in the context of the New Testament. It's also in the context of the world today and in the context of various cultures in the world today. So um, so let's roam around um, for a moment in, uh, in some of these biblical metaphors. Maybe take one that you feel like we should reconsider um, the way that we have historically understood it um, as you bring it into context. Well, the Bible consistently uses three metaphors, purification, payment, and load-bearing, you know, bearing a load, like to bear sin. And every theory and every place that the Bible talks about atonement, it's it's somehow interweaving these, and these are unexplored. One of the things, for example, that I noticed that I found perplexing was uh, how people mixed metaphors. So people would say, uh, he, uh, Christ paid uh, our punishment, you know, paid for, they paid for our sins by paying our debt. Well, there'd be this confusion of punishment and payment, but like in the biblical world, if you had a debt, then you were punished. If you paid the debt, you didn't go into punishment. But I found people kept collapsing those two saying he paid our debt by taking our punishment. And then while I get the truth of what is trying to be communicated, the wording is not the way the Bible talks about it. I'll give you another example that is maybe more helpful. Uh, Bearing sin. Mm -hmm. Almost, almost every time to bear sin means to take on some punishment for the sin, your sin, right? 
Well, in English translations, there's another usage of that that's completely opposite meaning, to mean forgive. And almost every time, or not almost every time, but many of the times that the Bible talks about God forgiving people in the Old Testament, it literally says he bears our sin. And it has this very over saving, positive meaning, the exact opposite. And so I started wondering, how is it the exact same phrase, bear sins, in one sense connotes punishment, the other it implies saving, the very same metaphor. Well, and that's what I wanted to dig into to understand what the logic was behind atonement. Mm, so helpful. We're um, we're talking with Jackson Wu. The book is The Cross in Context. So when you think about um, the biblical metaphors for atonement, which one maybe do you turn to most readily? Do you um, do you think of being purified? Do you think of, you know, white as your sins, which were scarlet, white as driven snow? Um, do you think of payment for a debt you could not ever pay yourself? Um, do you think of the bearing of the load um, and that in the context here of forgiveness? Which metaphor, you know, is really the one that you maybe rely on, that you turn to when you talk with others about the atonement? That's uh, what we're hoping to stimulate in terms of our conversation today will be uh, back in our conversation with Jackson Wu in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. As we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first generation of Christians, reading here the book of Acts and all the letters to the Christians in the New Testament, we see people who like wake up. They come to see and understand and then receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And it changes everything. We see Christians then telling other people about the good news and inviting them to respond in repentance, be baptized, and follow Jesus. The movement of Christianity grows person by person and then exponentially as people walking in darkness receive the light of Christ and want others to know what they know and have what they have. Well, you and I are living in dark days. People need light. And Jesus is the light of the world today in the same way that he was the light of the world at the beginning of creation and at the first Christmas and throughout his life on earth and in his radiance now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. So if you're walking in darkness of any kind today, I invite you to consider Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. Continuing our conversation with Jackson Wu, the book is The Cross in Context. The subject matter is, you know, how do we really... Um, reconcile and understand as um, as integrated one integrated thought process these biblical metaphors for atonement. So Jackson, um, talk with us about justice. What does all of this have to do with justice? Well, the intriguing thing I realized as I was writing the book is that your view of atonement is very linked to your view of justice. But what people misunderstand is that throughout history, and even in our culture, there are different aspects of justice. There's retributive justice, like, you know, the kind of where you, like, you punish for wrongdoing. There's a, a restorative justice where you're trying to bring about right in the world. And in the Bible, you also see this other idea of covenant justice, where you meet your obligations in a relationship. 
And depending on what type of justice aspect of justice you're emphasizing, it's going to affect what your view of the atonement. And uh, in the book, I explore how the church has emphasized different aspects of justice for the last 2000 years. And you actually see that affect the popular views of atonement over the past 2000 years. Can you give us an example? I think that was helpful for people to understand more about what you're uh, what you're pointing to here. Sure. So, for example, in the Reformation, John Calvin and Martin Luther both had uh, lawyer backgrounds, and so they really emphasized this uh, punitive or re- retribution aspect of justice, that punishing as a penalty uh, for sin and wrongdoing. And that's when uh, penal substitutionary atonement became extremely popular. It, there's parts of that always been around, but it became the primary metaphor that Protestants began to use, almost to the exclusion of all other understandings and aspects of the atonement. Wow. So culture really does affect, yeah, culture really does affect your view of the atonement. And what I want to push back in, in this book is to say, it doesn't have to be an either or, but it's not just enough to say, hey, we all have truth. I wanted to explore what's the biblical logic that unites all these things. All right. And what did you come up with? Well, when we get to the ingredients, purification, payment, and load bearing, you actually see an internal logic that I'll simplify in this way. In effect, this is oversimplification. We become impure, either ritually or through sin. Therefore, we have an obligation or a debt to relieve that, to take care of that problem. And what do you do when you, uh, and that debt is a burden, you see, that you're bearing a responsibility. So in that simple little explanation, you see purification, you know, debt and load bearing all together. And that logic you see throughout the entire Old and New Testament. Yeah. So you're, what you're doing is you are really integrating these um, biblical metaphors as opposed to saying, there are these three and you have to pick one. You're saying, no, mm-hmm. there are these three and we can understand them as an integrated whole. Absolutely. And I think our, you know, we as humans are desperate for certainty and we hate ambiguity. And so that's why we create these systematic categories. Uh, but all that does is hide biblical truth and, and divide the church. So I want to cut through all that fear. Mm. All right. You um, you have some other things that you're passionate about. So um, now that I have obediently had a conversation about the book, can we talk about other things? <laughs> of course. <laughs> so I am looking at a recent blog that you have posted here um, about how Thailand is honoring the disabled. Can you um, I mean, can you explore that with us? Because it's really like it's really extraordinary. Yeah. One of my specialties is honor and shame and how honor and shame is in the Bible and in cultures. And one of the amazing things that uh, my daughter just came back from Thailand and she was doing some working with uh, people who in wheelchairs. And one of the programs they have there, it's in partnership with Johnny and friends is uh, they will take wheelchairs and repair them and, and give them to disabled persons. Well, one of the things that we found out there is that the princess actually sponsors this and there's a label put on these wheelchairs saying in effect this is a gift from the royal family no one can take it from them and this is a gift so those who are most shamed in thai culture you know the disabled actually are honored by the royal family with this incredible gift i mean how biblical is that the 
overturning and reversing of honor shame dynamics. Yeah, it's really um, extraordinary. You guys, um, again, I'll put the link to this in today's show notes so that you can not only read um, uh, what Jackson has written about this, but you can see the pictures because um, it's really, really extraordinary. Whenever a wheelchair through this um, wheelchair project, and again, in partnership with Johnny and Friends, such a sweet, um, such a sweet friend in Christ, um, whenever a wheelchair comes into the port of Thailand, an inscription is put on it. Uh, the inscription conveys this idea. This chair is a gift from the royal princess. It cannot be bought, sold, traded, or taken away from its owner. Um, yeah, this honoring of a person who in many ways um, on most days is shamed um, is just really, it's really extraordinary. It's such an act of grace. Um, and I appreciated mm. the way that you um you know, you highlighted that component as well. Well, that's what the gospel does, right? It overturns shame with honor. So when you think about our brothers and sisters in Christ um, in China, um, you know, we uh, we have had recent conversations about pastors in China and the house church movement, which we recognize is not really in houses anymore. Um, when you think about our Christian brothers and sisters in China, what are some of the things that just are top of mind for you? Perseverance and endurance, for sure. And they understand the church is family. As a collectivist society, they they really put the group ahead of, of themselves individually, and they love each other so well because of it. And so we have so much to learn from our brothers and sisters there. Perseverance and the sense of family in the church, those are immediately come to mind. Um, so for folks who, you know, are saying to themselves, oh, yeah, I mean, you know, the church is the household of God. The church is, uh, you know, the church is the family of faith. I have brothers and sisters in Christ. But we're operating out of an American mindset when we say all of that. Um, we're not thinking family the way that you are using that term. So can you unpack that mm -hmm. a little more fully for us? Yeah, I mean, I'll just give one tangible example. Uh, a friend of ours was in the in the hospital and in the hospitals they don't feed you food and anything you, you have to have somebody take care of you uh bring you stuff i mean it, it's not like the medical care here you're on your own and she was having a pre-serious surgery and the church had people at the hospital around the clock constantly providing for all her needs clothes food whatever because again the hospital there didn't take care of it so no one brought you food you didn't eat and 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 that was just extraordinary to see the constant care and attention that the hospital staff was actually amazed that they were being loved like this. And of course, it leads the conversation about Jesus. Amen. Amen. It opens up all kinds of opportunities. Um, Jackson, what a delight to connect with you. Thank you um, so much for the conversation today. Thank you for your ongoing um, writing in these areas. You guys can follow uh, Jackson on Twitter at Jackson Wu for China. I will put all the links in the show notes uh, for today. You can read what he's writing at jacksonwu.org. Uh, today, we were talking about the cross in context, reconsidering biblical metaphors for atonement, but he's got a whole lot more going on um, and writes across a wide um, subject matter uh, area. So Jackson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Absolutely. He also serves as the marketing manager for Frontier Ventures, so you could check that out as well. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is Faith Radio.
Let's spend a time surveying the wondrous cross, and I'm going to use the um, the verses of the hymn when I survey the wondrous cross, and just talk with you through these verses. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. How do you approach the cross? How do you see it? Who is on it? Do you see Jesus, the Prince of Glory? And in seeing Jesus, do you also see yourself? And do you see that all that you are and all that you have is nothing compared to him? To sing that we would pour contempt on all our pride, that's an acknowledgement of the status that we're in as sinners in need of salvation. There's something going on here as we sing this hymn, as we consider the cross, about how we see ourselves. So when you survey the cross, you're also surveying yourself in the shadow of it. And so verse 2 says, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God. That means that the only thing I boast in, the only thing that I can take positive pride in is Jesus. All the vain things that charm me most, everything about this life and this world, I sacrifice them. I sacrifice them. This is an image of not only being a living sacrifice, but actually recognizing that the things of this world are all passing away. And the only thing that's, that are going to last are those things that are done in and for and through Christ to the glory of God. And then verse 3 gets us up close. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? When you think about the blood um, that Jesus shed, not only from the wounds in his hands and in his feet, but the stripes upon his back and the thorns upon his brow, that is sorrow and love mingling together. It's, it's just the greatness of Christ upon the cross that the agony that he experiences is because he loves us so much. Which brings us to verse 4. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When you consider the cross, are you overwhelmed, not only with grief and acknowledgement of the sin that nailed him there, but are you filled with gratitude and awe? Are you asking, who is this God who loves me so much? And are you coming to the cross today with the living sacrifice of your life? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Stay tuned for a second hour of Mornings with Carmen on this special edition, Good Friday. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. 
That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.